I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. This is the second in a two-part series on the curses and judgment on false shepherds. And we will also be looking much at the Jew, at Israel, and the issues surrounding prophecy with respect to the Jew. And might I say from the outset this morning that as a pastor teacher, sometimes I preach and sometimes I teach. And there's a much overlap between the two. In preaching, there's perhaps at times a bit more passion and a, and a little more application. In teaching, it's much more going through precisely what the word is saying. And hopefully there is a balance between the two. But this morning, it's going to be a bit out of balance because this morning I fear that I, I need to teach you. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you from the outset to hang on. OK, we're going to look at a lot of information here this morning that will set the stage for the coming weeks as we enter into Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the great Olivet Discourse, as we study much about prophecy and I might also add that in several months when we finish the Gospel of Matthew, we will begin another book that we will go through verse by verse. And I would like to go back to where I started 11 years ago at Calvary Bible Church, and I will take you through the book of Revelation verse by verse that will tie into much of what you will hear even this morning. Have you ever wondered why? The Jews are the most persecuted people on the face of the earth. Have you ever wondered why anti-Semitism has been so consistent throughout history? Indeed, there have been many people who have been victims of, of genocide, but none compare to the unrivaled hatred of the Jew. The virus of anti-Semitism began with the Egyptians. We can look back in history and see it with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, with the Medo-Persian Empire, then with the Greeks, with the Romans. The people were dispersed all over the globe, struggling to survive. You can look in the medieval period and you can see that they were slaughtered in northern Europe, beginning even with the Crusades. They were ruthlessly persecuted by Richard the Lionhearted in England. They would do things like take them into the court squares there in London, tie their arms and their legs onto four separate horses and send them away and tear the people asunder. And then they would hang their corpses on gallows for all of the people to see so that the public hatred could somehow be satisfied. The Spaniards burned them publicly in the Inquisition. And they were ultimately expelled by Ferdinand and Isabella. They were tortured in France. You'll remember Voltaire, considered the high priest of modern anti-Semitism, said of the Jews, and I quote, You have surpassed all nations in impertinent fables, in bad conduct and barbarism. You deserve to be punished for this, your destiny. You can look in history and you can read of the pogroms in, in Poland and in Russia, especially under the Cossacks. You can study the 
unimaginable atrocities of the Holocaust committed in Hitler's Germany, where six million Jews were murdered during the Nazi empire between 1933 and 1945, while the rest of the world turned their backs. Even to this day, tiny little Israel suffers relentless persecution from people around the world, especially the Arab and Muslim neighbors that outnumber them drastically. People who argue vigorously that God's covenant was not between Abraham and Isaac, but between Abraham and Ishmael. Indeed, throughout the vast majority of history, the Jews have lived on the slopes of a volcano, hated with a fervent hatred. We must ask the question, why is this so? Well, dear friends, the answer is because the Jews are central in God's redemptive plan for humanity. And they have chosen to rebel against God and reject their Messiah. We can look all the way back at the curse in Genesis 3 and verse 15, when God promised a perpetual enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, the descendants of Satan, the unsaved, the children of the devil, and the descendants of Eve, though, which, which would include Christ, and those who are united to him in faith, the children of God. Those would battle until the God of peace finally crushes Satan under his feet. Indeed, the Jewish struggle is one that is staggering when you look at it. But, dear friends, so much of it is due to their hard-hearted rebellion against Jehovah God. And catch this, their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to them as their Messiah. We can go back in Deuteronomy 28, where we read how God promised blessing for obedience and and warned them of judgment for disobedience. Beginning in verse 64, we read, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Now, mind you, this is what happens if you're disobedient. This is what he's warning. And he goes on to say, And among those nations you shall find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you and you shall be in dread night and day and shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would that it were evening. And in evening you shall say, would that it were a morning because of the dread of your heart, which you dread and for the sight of your eyes, which you shall see. Dear friends, Jesus promised that this will be the fate of the Jews until Messiah returns. When, according to the Lord's words in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And dear friends, this is a glorious until. This word gives us great hope and should give the Jew great hope. Indeed, in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord God tells us that he chose them to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who were on the face of the earth, how he set his love upon them and that he will never ultimately abandon them. And for this reason, 
the Jews continue to exist. In fact, the Jewish nation of Israel today is a modern miracle. Indeed, he is the ap- they are the apple of his eye. And he has promised to ultimately destroy those nations, according to Zechariah 2.8, that touches the apple of his eye, referring to the pupil of one's eye. And scripture is filled with promises of a future spiritual and physical restoration of Israel. God is not finished with the Jew, dear friends. But for now, the Jews continue to suffer under Gentile domination. And again, as Jesus said, this will happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles refers to an era of Gentile domination over the covenant people that began all the way back with Israel's captivity in 586 B.C. with the Babylonians. And it will continue until her ultimate restoration in the millennial kingdom. But all of this will be preceded by seven years of tribulation upon the earth. This is also known as Daniel's 70th week, 70 weeks of years, which calculates to 490 years in total. You read of this in Daniel 9. And by the way, in future days, we will go over this in much more detail. So there has been 483 years so far of the 490 that have been completed, that have been fulfilled precisely. But there's seven years yet to go. The 483 years were finished. The prophecies were completed when the anointed one was cut off, as Daniel tells us, when the Messiah was killed and and when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But during that final 70th week, we read that the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth in a succession of woes unfolded in the book of Revelation and also in Matthew 23 and other texts through seven seals and through trumpets and bold judgments. And this will occur in a final period of seven years of judgment that still remains, something that awaits the world and awaits the Jew. And I believe that this period of time is distinctly Jewish when God not only destroys rebellious mankind in a series of horrific cataclysms, but also a time when he finishes his judgment upon Israel for their long standing apostasy. When the church is suddenly removed, I believe the clock for Israel's final judgment will begin ticking once again. In fact, we read in Romans 11 that Israel's spiritual blindness is only temporary. In verse 25, we read that it until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in again. Now, until refers to a specific point in time and fullness is a term used in connection to salvation. Literally what we read there and in other passages is that when the last Gentile of the church age has been saved. The church, the bride of Christ, will exit this world in what is known as the rapture or the snatching away. And God will turn his attention once again to his covenant people. We read about this much in Daniel 9. And ultimately, in Romans 11, in verse 26, we, we read that at the end of that time, 
All Israel will be saved, Paul tells us. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Dear friends, today we are spectators of God's judgment against his covenant people for their apostasy. We today witness the spiritual hardening that began with their rejection of Jesus their Messiah. But also we are spectators of his merciful preservation of his people as we witness the miracle of the Jew whose light cannot and will not be extinguished. Now we come to the text before us in Matthew 23 with that introduction. We now come back to the final hours of Jewish rejection as The Lord Jesus comes unto his own and his own refuses him and rejects him. We've learned that the religious leaders that represented apostate Israel were the focus of our Lord's last public sermon. Remember now, it's just hours literally before his betrayal and his crucifixion as he stands there in the outer court of the temple speaking to the people and the apostate leaders. And in that last public sermon... He gave a detailed denunciation of false shepherds, as we have studied, underscoring the seriousness of their influence. And then beginning in verse 13 of chapter 23, he pronounces seven curses upon them, seven judgments on religious charlatans who systematically attack the truth. And then in one final climactic pronouncement, he says to them, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell in verse 33? In other words, he says to them, you hard hearted, obdurate, impenitent, sanctimonious, sacrilegious snakes. You vipers in Greek, you echidna. Everybody knew what that was. That was a small, poisonous desert snake that was very, very deadly. In fact, it looked like a stick. Perhaps the best way for us to think about it is like a copperhead today. If you see them in the woods, you you can look at them and they just blend in with everything. Well, it was easy for people of that day to be picking up firewood and accidentally touch one of those deadly snakes Because of its camouflage. By the way, that was the type of snake that Paul picked up when he was on the Isle of Malta. And everybody thought he would die, remember? Well, this was a fitting description for the false shepherds. And certainly a well understood analogy in that culture. Because the echidna was literally a synonym to those people. For extreme evil and deadly danger that was deceptive. And so Jesus' final condemnation is one that they all understood. And then finally he says to them, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And again, people understood this. They understood that the farmers of that day would prepare the land for the next year. And they would do so by burning off the land. And this would also help kill off those deadly vipers that were such a plague to the people. 
And those vipers would desperately try to escape the fire, to escape the flames, but they could not and they would be destroyed. And this will be the ultimate fate of all religious vipers. But now, lastly, Jesus pronounces judgment on them and on all of apostate Israel that has continued until this very day. And I have divided this text that we will look at here, beginning in verse 34 through the end of the chapter. I've divided it into three sections. We will see, first of all, the final proclamation Then we will see the Lord's farewell pathos and his farewell promise. Notice the final proclamation as the Lord stands there in the outer court of the temple with all of the multitudes around him and all of the apostate leaders standing there glaring at him. Beginning in verse 30, 34, we read, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And dear friends, this is precisely what happened. Those wretched hypocrites hounded and killed the apostles. And many other faithful converts to Christianity. By the way, the prophets here and the wise men and scribes would be Old Testament terminology that the people of that day would have understood. Referring to the apostles and the pastors and the teachers who will proclaim the gospel of grace. Well, Jesus sent them out then as he does to this day. And the the apostate Jews of that day as well as today continue to reject them, incurring greater judgment upon themselves for their persistent rejection and despite the ongoing opportunities they have to hear and to repent. And it's so tragic, isn't it, how their their blind pride caused them not to be able to see the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus was. And folks, think of this, like no other people In all of history, the Jew was able at this time in in history to witness the living Christ, God incarnate. They saw his miracles. They, They were recipients of his blessing. Almost all of the disease in Palestine had been cured. Many of them had eaten from the food that he had spoken into existence. In fact, they had heard him teach And like no other generation in the history of the world, they were utterly encompassed with the light of divine revelation, yet they refused. And I shudder to think of those even today, 2,000 years later, successive generations of people who have been able to see clearly the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. That they've been able to hear the... The the word of God over and over, and yet they mock him, heaping judgment upon themselves. And my friend, if I can pause for a moment and say to you, if you are among the number of those who mock Christ, if you are among those who would ridicule his word, I warn you 
that a day of judgment is coming. The Word of God tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed unto man once to die. Then comes the judgment. And I plead with you to repent and believe before it is too late. For I assure you that when you stand in the presence of a holy God, as we all will someday, the penetrating glare of divine wrath will melt away any smirk of pride that you will have on your face as a laser would melt away a candle. Well, obviously, the scribes and the Pharisees, along with apostate Israel, chose not only to reject Christ, but to crucify them, to crucify him. And therefore, in verse 35, we read how that the guilt fell upon them of all the righteous blood, Jesus says, shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You see, friends, their murderous rejection spanned the entire history of the Old Testament. Is what Jesus is saying all the way back. Around the time of creation with Abel to the prophet Zechariah, who was among the last of the prophets to be martyred at the hands of the Jews. A man who, along with his contemporary Haggai, cried out to the people to repent and pleaded with the people because of their indifference to their own sin and their hypocrisy. A man who next to Isaiah spoke more of the coming Messiah than all of the prophets. And yet they killed even Zechariah. In essence, Jesus is saying, because of your current wickedness, you are co-conspirators even with your forefathers. So Jesus' final proclamation to them was in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And dear friends, all the multiplied wrath of God throughout redemptive history to that period of time would be poured out upon that generation. Many of those people who were standing around Jesus at that moment And indeed, 40 years later, in A.D. 70, 50,000 elite Roman troops marched into Palestine, marched into Jerusalem. And we read that immediately they captured 500 Jewish leaders and crucified them. And no doubt, many of the scoffers of Jesus standing there before him on that day were among that number. Then systematically, they slaughtered 1.1 million Jews. Josephus, the historian of that day, described the Holocaust, and I quote, Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none of the objects of their fury, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple There was left nothing, he goes on to say, to make those that came thither believe it has ever been inhabited. Not only that, it's estimated that they took 100,000 captives to Egypt to sell as slaves. Obviously, that glutted the market for slaves, thus fulfilling the prophecy all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, 68. Where we read, and the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. 
by the way about which I spoke to you. You will never see it again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. That's sad when you can't even sell yourself as a slave. You see, friends, just as Jesus promised, Israel was utterly destroyed. And since then, as I reminded you earlier, they have continued to live under divine judgment. And their suffering continues to this day. But will you notice Jesus' last words to obdurate Israel, the people whom he chose, the people whom he set his love upon? Beginning in verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Friends, here we see what I would call the farewell pathos of the Lord. We see his farewell sorrow, his misery, his grief. And here we see the immense compassion of Jesus, don't we? How he longs to see his people embrace him as Savior and Lord. And with the imagery of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings to, to protect them from some predator or to shade them from the summer's heat, Jesus expresses the pathos of those who resent his tender care. Jerusalem, he says, meaning city of peace. The city that symbolized all of Israel. The people who were intended to be a witness nation. Testifying to the mercy and the holiness and the faithfulness of God. Was now designated as the perpetual murderess of the prophets. And the stoner of divine emissaries that would follow the New Testament prophets. And now she was about to murder her king. Folks, put yourself there. Can't you imagine the tears coming from the eyes of Jesus? Can't you hear the quiver in his voice as he laments and as he looks around at the faces of the multitudes? People who just days before cried out, Hosanna in the highest. Knowing that those same people were going to cry for his blood. How often, he says, I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What a stunning image of tenderness and self-sacrificial love. This same remarkable figure, by the way, can be seen all throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 17, 8, the psalmist prayed, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 57, 1, David cried out to God, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. In Psalm 91, 1, we read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And at the beginning of verse 4, he goes on to say, He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. 
No doubt Jesus was using the figure of wings to remind the people of the wings of the cherubim, which covered the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. For it was there that the presence of Jehovah hovered in his glorious Shekinah all throughout the history of the Old Testament. As we look at the word of God, we see that it was under those wings, I should say, between the wings of the cherubim that the protector God of Israel manifested his glory and communed with his people. In fact, the ancient rabbis used the figure of Bird's wings to picture the shelter of the Shekinah glory. You see, Jesus was saying to them that I would have taken you under my wings. I would have sheltered you under the protection of my messianic glory. I would have been your merciful savior. I would have been your your deliverer from the penalty and bondage of sin. I would have been your impregnable fortress of refuge. I would have secured forever your souls by my loving kindness and my faithfulness. If you would have only repented, if you would have only believed. But notice the text says they were unwilling, unwilling to seek refuge in him. You see, the choice was theirs. And like all who deliberately refuse to humbly bow the knee to the Savior in genuine repentance, God will abandon them to the eternal consequences of their choice. You know, this is true of all who persist in unbelief. Their rebellion will ultimately be met with with the righteous outpouring of divine wrath. And according to verse 32 They had filled up the cup of condemnation. The Lord had had all he was going to take. And it was now spilling over into the ultimate outpouring of divine wrath and divine abandonment. Reminiscent of Isaiah 51 and verse 17 where we read, Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. You see, friends, the deliverance and protection of God's glory had once before departed from the temple and departed from Jerusalem. You will recall that happened when the theocratic kingdom had entered that period of time of captivity with the Babylonians. And now, once again, the glory will depart from Israel. Ichabod, the glory has departed as it has from so many churches around our country and the world today. In verse 38, therefore, he says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house, a reference to the temple, to the very place where they stood. Notice that he no longer calls it my father's house, but rather he calls it your house. And so he's saying to them, therefore, I'm now going to abandon you to the consequences of your unbelief. I'm now going to allow you to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. And all of these things will come upon this generation And little did they know that some 40 years later, 
they would experience inconceivable torture and death at the hands of the Romans. But dear friends, that was merely a foretaste, a light foretaste of the persecutions that would come in years to follow. And nothing to compare with what they will experience during the seven years of tribulation upon the earth. Jeremiah calls that time the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. A time Jesus would later describe in Matthew 24, 21 as one such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. That great theologian A.T. Robertson rightly describes this scene as a tragic moment in the history of Israel. And here's what he said, quote, the desolation thus inaugurated by our Lord's judicial departure will reach its dreadful climax in something named by him the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, verse 15. When the Jewish temple will once more have a regal occupant, this time Satan's own great pretender and usurper whose presence there will loose upon the nation its most terrible time of trouble. You see, friends, as we look at the Jews today, we see two primary conditions that characterize their plight. First of all, we see that their Messiah is absent from their midst. And secondly, we see that they live in desolation. They live in despair. They live in misery without relief. And again, what a picture of sinners who reject the Savior. People who kind of wander through life chasing after whatever is out there for them to grab hold to, to somehow satisfy their lusts and give them a little relief in this journey of uncertainty and hopelessness. People whose lives are separated from God. They have no power. They have no protection. And they somehow traverse a sea of hopelessness and despair, seeking anything they can to somehow anesthetize the pain until finally it's all over. Well, so we witness Jesus' final proclamation and his farewell pathos. But notice, dear friends, the refreshing waters of hope that ultimately flow from the tears of divine agony here in verse 29. He says, for I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And friends, here we rejoice in the third division of this text, in this farewell promise. Indeed, he's saying, because of your rejection, from now on, you shall not see me. And again, for 2000 years, they have not seen him to this very day. They do not see him. And Satan has been granted permission to torment them. But notice that precious word of promise once again. The word until. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, when you look at this, dear friends, Jesus did not say unless. He said until. This is a glorious hope. You see, my friends, a future day of their conversion has been carved in the granite of divine sovereignty. And Jesus gives no hint now as to when this is going to happen. 
The, the interval of, of time is wholly indeterminate. We don't know what the time will be. He simply says, until. And notice he uses the very text the multitudes quoted only a few days earlier in his triumphal entry in Psalm 118.26. Until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, when Jesus returns the next time, what once was said in ignorance and unbelief will be said in full knowledge with genuine faith. And the lover of their souls and the lover of our souls. Israel will one day repent in her tribulation, even as promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 30 and verse three, where we read, then the Lord, your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the people where the Lord, your God has scattered you. Dear friends, this will be a time when they will heed the words of the prophet Zechariah they murdered. Who spoke for the Lord, saying in Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 8, in that day. Now, mind you, this is the day when the Lord returns the second time as king of kings and Lord of lords. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all of the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see, dear friends, in that glorious day, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they rejoice in the Savior that they had so long rejected. And mourn in humble contrition over all of the years of their apostasy and their unbelief. The furious storm of righteous indignation that has tormented the covenant people for the crime at Calvary will one day cease. Because of their humble repentance, their sorrow that we see today will turn to joy. That time when the partial hardening, as Paul reminds us of, will be over. In fact, Zechariah went on to say in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, In that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the false prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And he even goes on beyond that in chapter 14 in verse 3 and verses 8 through 9. He says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all of the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. What a day that will be. These glorious promises, dear friends, should inspire all of us to get serious 
about serving the Lord with utmost passion. This is not some myth. And if you believe it is, then go ahead and live your life any way you want. But I believe with all my heart that this is the truth and that Jesus is coming again someday. And as we look at the prophetic timetable, I believe that the day could be very soon. What exhilarating joy we should have as spectators of prophecy. We watch it unfold before our very eyes as we look at the news and read the papers. By the way, it's no wonder the early Christians used to greet each other by saying Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. We will see that Christ's prediction of judgment here in this text upon Israel's temple, upon Jerusalem, upon the nation and so on, aroused intense desire in the disciples for more information. They're going to want to know the nature and the duration of Israel's desolation, culminating in her ultimate restoration when King Jesus would eventually return and establish his kingdom. They were very confused about all of this. And we're going to see all of this unfold before us as we begin to look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. As we see the Lord answering four questions in his greatest prophetic discourse. Now I want to give you some practical consideration here. Because I know some of you are saying, well, this is all fascinating. But I'm just curious, Pastor, how does this apply to me? Well, the answer is simply this. Hours, literally hours after this public sermon, Jesus responds to the disciples in Luke 21, beginning in 28, verse 28, and other texts as well. But we're going to look at this one for a moment. He says, now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. When these things begin to happen. We're we're to look up, lift up our heads. Our redemption draws nigh. Redemption here is a fascinating term, apolytrosis. It has the idea of the redemption of the body. When is that going to happen? At the rapture of the church? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, we're all going to be changed. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it's fascinating. In Luke 21... And verse 28, and we'll look at this in more detail in days to come. This particular text has no parallel in in Matthew or Mark. But in that particular text, the Lord distinguishes between the redemption of the Christian's body and the arrival of the kingdom of God. In verse 28, he says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. But in verse 31, he says, when all the signs are are happening, not when they're beginning, we're to understand that the kingdom of God is near. A warning to tribulation saints. Well, This is an important distinction. The redemption of the body occurs first. Then the arrival of the kingdom of God. Two very different transactions. And as believers, here's how all of this applies to you. We must now, I believe, be looking for the redemption of our bodies. These things have begun to happen. Well, what things? 
Jesus says, you know, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws. Now, what things? Well, simple. The calamities that he's just been discussing in his last sermon. Literally hours before he responds to the disciples. And, and the things that he's discussing in private conversation now with his disciples, the persecution of his witnesses, the desolation and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, all of which has not only begun to happen, but as we look at it, it has happened and it continues to happen. You see, friends, I believe in the imminent return of Christ for his bride, the church. I believe that the Lord could come at any minute to snatch us away. And then after that glorious snatching away, which is called by many the rapture of the church, there will be the outpouring of, of God's wrath upon the world and a worldwide tribulation. And then you will have the glorious appearing of Messiah and the inauguration of the kingdom. In fact, James tells us in what would be considered the earliest New Testament epistle to establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He goes on to say, behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is very practical to me as a Christian. I want to be living in light of his coming. In first Peter four, seven, Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Does that characterize your prayer life? You see, all through the New Testament, the writers consistently convey the idea that Christ's appearing appearing would happen imminently at any time. In fact, it's fascinating, fascinating to me that Paul's use of personal pronouns indicate that even he himself considered that he himself could be caught up alive to meet the Lord. In First Thessalonians 4, he says, we who are alive, not those people someday, but we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. He goes on to say, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Beloved, all these amazing promises that we've been studying should stir our hearts to faith and to holy living. Because we are all, as Paul said to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Are you abiding in him? That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Are you going to be ashamed when the Lord comes to snatch you away? You see, my friends, without the conviction of an imminent return of our dear Savior. Without our hearts ablaze with anticipation, apart from our, our eyes being fixed on the, on the eastern sky, looking for Him to appear, apart from all of that, I fear that our motivation for holy living and faithful service would quickly wane. Without this, the power of the blessed hope, I fear, would be lost. But it is a blessed hope. And I live in light of that hope, knowing that at any moment there could be the redemption of the body. And so I'm looking up. We should all be looking up for our redemption draws nigh. 
Because these things have begun. A great, great theologian, Alfred Adersheim, theologian of the 20th century, said this, and I quote, The peculiar attitude of the church, with loins girt for work, since the time was short, and the Lord might come at any moment, with her hands busy, her mind faithful, her bearing self-denying and devoted, her heart full of loving expectancy, her face upturned toward the sun that was so soon to rise, and her straining to catch the first notes of heaven's song of trumpet. Without this, all would have been lost, referring to their hope. Well, may we all live in light of Christ's imminent return. Consistent, I believe, with the Apostle's admonition in 1 John 3, 3. Where the Holy Spirit of God speaks to us and says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice knowing that someday your sovereign plan will come to fruition and there's nothing that can thwart that. And Lord, even though we don't know all of the times, we, we, there, there's so many inferences in Scripture. Lord, it's hard for us to even understand all of the nuances of eschatology. But Lord, we do know this, that someday, there will be an ultimate reconciliation of your covenant people. And we pray that that day will be soon for them. But Lord, we thank you that you are even now making ready your bride, the church, of which we belong even here in this room. And those that are listening in other places around the world. Lord, we thank you for the transforming power of your grace, of the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we be found faithful because of the purifying hope, knowing that at any moment you could come and snatch us away. Lord, we long to see you. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.